Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care Workshop, Coping with Metastatic Triple Negative Breast Cancer. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort um, with the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. I really want to thank them for their support of the program. I'll say more about that throughout the program as well. Um, this program is also done in collaboration with a number of other cancer organizations and breast cancer organizations as well. And um, because of all that collaboration and your interest in this topic, which is really um, actually um, in the news now much more than ever before, um, we have over 490 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, um, from both rural and urban and suburban areas. And we also have international participants today from Belgium, Canada, France, New Zealand, the Philippines, Portugal, United Kingdom, and the Venezuela. So really, um, it's a bit of a global call. And today's program has been supported entirely by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, and I really want to thank them for their support and their great generosity. We have a number of Triple Negative programs uh, coming up, um, so stay tuned. There are many, many more workshops that we're planning, um, so you'll be hearing more about these as well. Um, now, we have wonderful speakers in our program today. I wish to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Sarah Tulaney, and Dr. Tulaney is Associate Director, Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers, Associate Director, Clinical Research, Breast Oncology. She's Senior Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Tulaney is going to be addressing updates in the treatment of metastatic triple negative breast cancer, the role of genomic testing and understanding your metastatic triple negative breast cancer and its treatment options, Diagnostic testing and technologies, why they are important, and precision medicine, examples of novel treatment approaches. It's really my great pleasure now to introduce my esteemed colleague, Dr. Tulaney. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so I wanted to start by just giving a little bit of a brief background about triple negative breast cancer and then chat a bit about some of the new and very exciting treatments uh, that are upcoming um, for, for triple negative disease. And so as most uh, people on this call probably know, triple negative breast cancer represents about 15% of all invasive breast cancers and it really has been defined by not having the presence of the estrogen receptor or the progesterone receptor or the HER2 receptor, so really defined by not having um, any of these three receptors. You know, I think it is probably more complicated than that. And, you know, triple negative disease is a heterogeneous disease, really composed of even several subtypes, um, with some data suggesting there may be about six different subtypes of triple negative breast cancer, including subtypes that we name as basal-like, immunomodulatory, mesenchymal, and others. And I think better understanding the heterogeneity of the disease in the future will help us better define what appropriate therapies um, can help various different patients with different subtypes. And so traditionally, because triple negative breast cancer has not had the estrogen, progesterone, or HER2 receptors to target, originally triple negative breast cancer has really just been treated with standard chemotherapy. And so, because we didn't have any targeted drugs available, that has changed and will continue to change. And so I think some of the most exciting data that actually has recently been in the news has been the introduction of immunotherapy. And the idea behind immunotherapy has been to really try to augment the body's own immune system to recognize things that that don't belong, so really to recognize foreign things um, such as cancer cells and then go after them. And so there are several different types of immunotherapy, and I think the most common type that has been studied to date are a class of drugs called checkpoint inhibitors. And these drugs really look to take the brakes 
off of the immune system to allow the immune system to then find the cancer cells and appropriately kill them. And so there have been many studies that have been done with immunotherapy, and originally we had studied these checkpoint inhibitors on their own. And so there were trials that looked at drugs such as pembrolizumab or atezolizumab, and these, again, are checkpoint inhibitors, so drugs that are taking the breaks off of the immune cells, specifically the T cells. Um, and when given by themselves, we did find that there was a small group of patients who had extraordinary responses. So somewhere between 5 to 10% of patients getting these drugs alone responded, and then those patients who responded had very durable responses. But I think we were disappointed by the fact that there was only 5 to 10% of patients who experienced these nice responses. And so a lot of work had been invested on trying to figure out how to augment this response and make it better. And one of the ways to do so was to combine immunotherapy with chemotherapy, with the idea being that chemotherapy could kill the cancer cell, release certain antigens and proteins into the bloodstream that would allow the immune system to find the cancer cell, and then you could add these immunotherapy agents to take the breaks off the immune cell so that they could then recognize and kill the cancer. And so there was a very large trial called the Impassion 130 study, which randomized women with metastatic triple negative breast cancer as their very first treatment from the time that they presented with metastatic disease to either get chemotherapy by itself, so specifically a drug called nabpaclitaxel, or to get this chemotherapy with atezolizumab. And again, atezolizumab is one of these checkpoint inhibitors. This was a very large trial that enrolled a little over 900 patients, and the data from this trial was actually just presented on Saturday at uh, the ESMO meeting, so an international meeting. And what they found was that patients who got both drugs, so both chemotherapy and immunotherapy, did better. And so their disease was controlled for longer, and they lived longer than those patients who just got chemotherapy alone. However, the benefit was really seen predominantly in women who had metastatic triple negative breast cancer, but then their tumors also had expression of this receptor called the PDL1 receptor. And so benefit was not seen in patients whose tumors were PDL1 negative, but rather the benefit was seen in patients who had tumors that were PDL1 positive. And I will say the benefits were very impressive within those patients who had these PDL1 positive tumors. The disease was controlled for two and a half months longer, and then patients were living almost 10 months longer than if they had just gotten chemotherapy alone. And so we do think that these data will likely lead to an FDA approval of this agent, atezolizumab, in combination with nabpaclitaxel for patients who have PDL1 positive triple negative breast cancer. Um, you know, it's not certain how long it will take um, to get the approval, uh, but I do think it is likely to happen. And so immunotherapy may become a new standard therapy for patients who have PDL1 positive triple negative disease. And so I think that's a really big breakthrough um, for the treatment of triple negative breast cancer um, because this agent did seem to have very dramatic improvements in outcome. Certainly one, you know, caution we always have when we're adding more treatments is are we adding more toxicity? And while generally immunotherapy is very well tolerated, it's an antibody um, that's infused, most people feel well after they get the immunotherapy. Um, however, there are some patients who get, can develop immune side effects, meaning that sometimes the immune system gets a little confused and instead of just attacking the cancer cells, can sometimes attack normal cells and cause an inflammatory reaction. And so, while these immune side effects are seen more commonly in, in patients getting immunotherapy, they didn't find a significant um, increase in toxicity with this particular trial. Um, and so the side effects that they saw were really what they would have anticipated from giving either drug alone and didn't see what we consider synergistic toxicities, meaning additive toxicities from giving both drugs together. So I think that was reassuring. Uh, but certainly there still is some chance of developing immune-related toxicity um, because of this overstimulation of the immune system. And that does have to be monitored carefully um, you know, by treating physicians. 
And so I think in, in general, I think immunotherapy is going to change the practice of, of how we approach patients with triple negative breast cancer, and I think will become a standard new first-line treatment. Um, there are several other very exciting drugs that are in development for triple negative disease, and I think another drug that I think is potentially likely to get FDA approved soon is a drug called sasetuzumab govotecan, otherwise known as IMU-132. And so this is a drug we call an antibody drug conjugate. And so what these are, are these are antibodies that are developed to a certain target on the surface of the triple negative cancer, and then they're linked to a chemotherapy drug. And so in this case, this antibody is directed on a receptor called trope 2, which is on the surface of the vast majority of triple negative breast cancers. And so this antibody allows um, the chemotherapy really to be targeted and delivered specifically into the cancer cell because the antibody will bind the trope 2 receptor and then that chemotherapy gets delivered into the cancer cell that has that receptor on it. And when they tested this drug, they had tested it in patients who had metastatic triple negative disease and patients who had had at least two lines of prior chemotherapy for their metastatic disease and found about a 30% response rate, which was very impressive and the duration of the responses was very durable. And so this drug did get breakthrough designation with the FDA and is currently under review for a potential FDA approval. And so again, it may get FDA approved in the next coming months. There is an ongoing trial currently accruing with this agent, so it's randomizing patients who've had at least two prior lines of chemotherapy for their triple negative disease to either get this drug, sasetuzumab govotecan, or to get a treatment of your physician's choice. This is the randomized trial that's really trying to prove that this drug is better than standard chemotherapy. Um, but again, it is under review with the FDA even while this trial is accruing, uh, really because the FDA felt that there was such impressive activity uh, that it may deserve an approval um, even before this randomized trial gets completed. And then there are lots of other, I think, very interesting drugs. Um, so one category of drugs that is specific to patients who actually have a BRCA mutation are PARP inhibitors. Um, and so these are oral drugs that really work to impair the repair of DNA. And so when someone has a BRCA mutation um, that they've inherited, they don't know how to repair DNA by one particular mechanism, and the PARP inhibitor will take away the other mechanism to repair DNA, and so then those cancer cells won't know how to repair themselves, and then they can die. And so there have been a couple very large trials that have studied these drugs in patients who have BRCA mutations and compared these agents to standard chemotherapy and have found that these drugs work better than chemotherapy in keeping disease controlled. Some examples are a drug called Olaparib, and, and another drug that was recently FDA approved is called Telazoparib. And these are oral PARP inhibitors that are options for treatment for patients who have underlying BRCA mutations. And so I do think it brings up the important point that it is within the guidelines now that if a patient has metastatic triple negative breast cancer that they really should seek genetic testing to know if they have a BRCA mutation or not, as about 10% of patients um, will have a BRCA mutation. And if a mutation is found, then I think consideration of one of these drugs, either Olaparib or Telazoparib, would be appropriate to consider at some point in the treatment course. And so then I think just finally turning to one other category of drugs that I think is interesting, um, you know, we had discussed at the beginning that, you know, I think triple negative disease really isn't just defined probably by lacking ER, PR, and HER2, but there are also lots of subtypes of triple negative disease that um, can maybe in the future help us better understand which drugs we should be giving to which subtype. And so one of the subtypes of triple negative breast cancer is this luminal androgen receptor subtype, so this LAR subtype, that we think is sensitive to inhibition of the androgen receptor. And so because of this, there have been several trials that have been done trying to look at turning off this androgen um, 
signaling in patients who have androgen receptor positive triple negative breast cancer. And initially, there was a drug called bicalutamide that was tried. Um, these are drugs that are honestly often used to treat prostate cancer because inhibition of this signaling is, is important for that disease. Um, and then later, we've seen trials looking at enzalutamide, so a more potent inhibitor of the androgen receptor. And we have seen patients who've had very nice responses with these agents. Um, so now there are other drugs that also inhibit the androgen receptor family that are being studied for patients who have the androgen receptor present um, on their triple negative breast cancer and certainly can be something that uh, people can consider um, through clinical trials. These, this class of drug is not um, FDA approved at this time and really would be something to think about through uh, clinical trials. And I think it does speak to the fact that, you know, Better understanding one's tumor may help one select appropriate treatments. We talked about PDL1 positivity maybe being the marker to help select which patients get immunotherapy. And then we talked about the androgen receptor, selecting patients for AR inhibition, and then the BRCA mutation, selecting patients who get PARP inhibition. There are other ways one can test one's tumor, such as doing genomic testing to better understand what pathways may be awry within the cancer, to better understand what drugs that could target that pathway that is awry to potentially help kill it. And so there are there are no drugs that are FDA approved yet based on results from a genomic test outside of BRCA testing, but there are lots of clinical trials that are available for patients who have certain alterations seen on their genomic testing. One example is that patients who have triple negative disease sometimes can have an alteration in this, what we call the P10 AKT or P3 kinase pathway. And if they have an alteration in one of these pathways, there are drugs that inhibit the AKT pathway that actually look very promising, um, including a drug called apatacertib. And so there are now trials that are ongoing looking at these AKT inhibitors in patients who have triple negative disease um, that I think do look very exciting, but again, are specifically for patients who have some genomic alteration in these pathways. And so I think there is going to be more to come on personalizing therapy based on, you know, genomic alterations um, as time goes on uh, for triple negative disease. Really as we learn more about how these different subtypes of cancers act, we'll be able to develop, I think, much better targeted therapies over time. But I think, you know, as you can see from all these drugs that we've discussed, there's certainly lots of very exciting treatments uh, that are available and that are soon to be coming um, and, and likely getting FDA approved very soon. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Sweeney. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful way to start today's program. Lots of information, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Rachel Jenkowitz. Dr. Jenkowitz is Medical Director of McGee Women's Hospital High-Risk Breast Cancer Program, Assistant Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology, Oncology, University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And Dr. Jenkins is going to really address the important role of clinical trials, examples of how clinical research may improve your care, controlling side effects, symptoms, and pain, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about your follow-up care and quality of life concerns. It's really now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Jenkins. Thank you very much for the introduction and for everyone taking the time to be on the call today. I'm first going to talk about, from a big-picture standpoint, the importance of clinical trials in breast cancer treatment for our patients. At any given time, there are multiple new treatments that are being studied for metastatic breast cancer, and enrolling in a clinical trial can provide access potentially to a novel treatment from which you could derive benefit. Additionally, clinical trials and the information that they provide may also help us improve standard treatments in the future for, for other patients. Oftentimes, the point of a clinical trial is to, is to determine whether a novel treatment should or should not eventually become a standard of care. It's therefore very common that the trial design seeks to compare a novel treatment in addition to a standard of care treatment versus the standard of care treatment alone. 
in general, for patients with metastatic breast cancer, clinical trials most often do not include a placebo. It's not advisable for us as clinicians to give treatments because we think they will work without having randomized evidence of their benefit. All medications have potential for side effects that at times can be dangerous and or, and or adversely affect the quality of life of our patients. One example of that, uh, one lesson learned in the history of our breast cancer story over the years has been uh, in the past there were bone marrow transplants done for breast cancer in early phase trials and ultimately they weren't found to be helpful. So we do need to be careful that just because we think a treatment's going to work, we can't offer it uh, until we know that it's safe and effective for our patients. Participation in a clinical trial is always optional, and the patient really needs to weigh the pros and cons with their individual oncologist and their family. The trial needs to be feasible from a travel and accessibility standpoint. One needs to think about frequency of the visits, lab draws, scans, and, and cost of transportation. All of this can factor into a patient's decision about participating in a trial. There are certain trials that are only offered at large academic centers, while others are open at community sites as well. There are many resources that a patient can use in order to try to find clinical trials, some of which uh, are readily available online, but all of which the patient probably needs to talk about with the help of their oncologist. But websites such as breastcancertrials.org in collaboration with Susan G. Komen offer a, a matching service to help you find a clinical trial. Additionally, uh, the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation offers a similar service for patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. The Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance also has a lot of great information and a search engine on their website. So I think that it has become easier for patients to, to search, but it still is overwhelming the amount of information that, that can be identified and really it needs to be a team search by the patient and their doctor. When we think about examples of how clinical research may improve your care or has already improved the care of patients, I think we just heard a wonderful overview of, of some specific examples of, of that, uh, which I also was going to highlight, but mainly we're looking for a treatment that would provide a more robust or durable regression or stabilization of, of the cancer compared to a standard treatment alone. Two key examples have already been reviewed with the addition of atezolizumab to abraxane, uh, which has been now shown to prolong um, progression-free survival in patients with triple negative breast cancer. That is uh, what we've already heard about in terms of immunotherapy. And then PARP inhibitors for our patients with BRCA mutations um, have been shown to also improve outcome in that subset. In terms of ongoing challenges and goals for the future, one of the biggest challenges for us as clinicians in terms of figuring out what treatment to use for what patients is tailoring the treatment to the patient's individual tumor, and that is an area of ongoing research. Another challenge for us is eligibility for clinical trials. One important thing that I think as clinicians we need to pay attention to is that often patients have what we call near triple negative disease, where they have a very minimal amount of hormone receptor positivity in their tumor that we don't think is actually clinically relevant, but sometimes can be prohibitive for getting a patient enrolled on a clinical trial that mandates triple negative disease. So I think as doctors, that's something that we need to pay attention to when we're designing new clinical trials in the, in the future, that we don't use too narrow of a definition of triple negative breast cancer so that we don't deny access uh, to patients who could potentially benefit from these treatments. Another huge challenge for us is taking care of our patients in terms of controlling their side effects from the treatments that we use, their symptoms, and, and potentially even pain. One thing that's been 
nice to see with the PARP inhibitors is that they actually, for the patients with BRCA mutations, provided good efficacy uh, and actually improved tolerability than standard of care chemotherapy. So that was a real benefit to us that we have this new way to treat patients and still maintain good tolerability of the treatment. But I think all of these new therapies that are coming through the clinic in clinical trials, we need to pay close attention to the potential side effects and quality of life. It is critical that as a patient you're seen on a regular basis by your oncology provider or a member of their care team to make sure that we are paying attention to, to how you're feeling in addition to treating the cancer. It is commonly the case that an oncologist will see a patient with metastatic breast cancer at least once a month. It's also common for the medical oncologist to enlist the aid of other providers, such as a palliative care clinician, a primary care doctor, or others to help control pain and symptoms. There are a number of supportive measures that are, are being examined in the care of, of patients with cancer and patients with metastatic breast cancer besides medications, such as things like acupuncture, yoga, meditation, or deep breathing, all of which can help the way that we take care of patients in a more holistic manner. In terms of key questions to ask your healthcare team for follow-up and quality of life concerns, I think that it's important for the patient to be able to ask their doctor, what is the expected outcome of my treatment? In other words, what is your hope and expectation in terms of my likelihood of a response to this treatment and a realistic estimation of the potential duration of that response? How often uh, should I be seen for my office visits? It sounds like a very simple question, but every office might do that slightly differently. And if patients don't ask and they don't have a sense of what they are supposed to be doing from a scheduling standpoint, that can lead to confusion between the treatment team and the patient. How often should I get scans to check on the status of my cancer and whether it has responded to or progressed on my current treatment? What is the office protocol for going over the results of those scans and planning next steps in my care? In other words, should I have an appointment to go over the results of my scans? Should that appointment be the next day, the same day? How does your office like to communicate that information and what should I expect as a patient? What symptoms do I need to call you for or when do I need to go to the emergency room in terms of symptoms that I should not ignore? Um, the next question is, are there supplemental services you could refer me to for pain management, symptom control, such as a palliative care doctor, acupuncture, yoga, et cetera? Is there a patient navigator in the office who can help me navigate community resources, understand office appointments, coordinate rides. There's, there can, sometimes can be financial aid available depending on the oncology office to help help with the burden of cancer care and the complexity and cost of cancer care. And I think in summary, I wanted to just communicate that the treatment of breast cancer we often say is a marathon, not a sprint. It does involve a long-term care relationship between the patient and their doctor, and I think there needs to be close communication between the patient and the treatment team in order to have everyone feel confident that, that we're taking care of the patient in the most comprehensive way possible. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Jankowitz. That was really outstanding and so very comprehensive. And I think you addressed a lot of the issues of really coping with metastatic triple negative breast cancer um, and, and also very important issues around dealing with the healthcare team and, and visits and your, your treatment side effects. So thank you. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. So please, everybody, get your questions ready because we're going to start taking your questions very soon. <laughs> Our next speaker is... Uh, is Ms. Haley Dinneman, and Ms. Dinneman is a lawyer, and she is the co-founder and executive director of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. And Ms. Dinneman actually has 
has really funded all of these uh, programs, um, actually, um, um, and I really wanted to thank her for her generous support, um, not just of these workshops, but also of her helpline, a number of other um, um, efforts that we have here at Cancer Care in behalf of people um, who are living with triple negative breast cancer. So I'm going to now turn this program over to this gentleman who's going to address um, the foundation itself, the Triple Negative Best Cancer Foundation. Um, so, Ms. Gentleman. Thank you so much for that introduction, Dr. Messner. Um, first, I want to take a moment to thank our partners at Cancer Care and my fellow presenters for the excellent overview on metastatic TNBC, including the updates on research, treatment approaches, and, of course, clinical trials. It goes without saying that TNBC-specific medical research is extremely important to our foundation. We support research at leading medical institutions, and we work very hard to inform you about any new developments in the area, including clinical trials. Uh, we also have expert scientific bloggers at the major medical conferences like ASCO, AACR, and SABCS, um, who are there to provide our community with insights and updates on new and emerging research and treatment options. So if you're interested in receiving these updates, please be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Today's teleconference is one of many programs that we offer. All of our programming is specifically designed to address the needs of the TNBC community. Our numerous educational brochures and fact sheets, which include specific information about metastatic TNBC, are available in print or as free downloads from our website, so I hope that you will use them to your benefit. Additionally, our metastatic TNBC discussion forum, also available online at tnbcfoundation.org, allows you to connect with others in our TNBC community who are living with metastatic disease or who are caring for a loved one with metastatic disease. You can use the forums to ask questions about treatment, about how to manage your side effects, and anything else relating to metastatic TNBC. But most importantly, our discussion forums offer consistent support. So if you aren't currently registered for the forums, you should consider joining them. You can even join anonymously if you like, but I can't stress enough how helpful they've been to so many women. Beyond that, the foundation is going to be hosting a number of educational programs on metastatic triple negative um, in 2019. So if you'd like to learn more, please connect with us on social media, uh, by phone or online at tnbcfoundation.org. I know everyone's eager to get to the Q&A, so with that in mind, I'll end here. Um, thank you again for joining us, and Dr. Messner, I'll turn it back to you. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. That was really, um, really outstanding, and just the work that you do is so important to everybody on the call. And our next speaker is Ms. Mary Rose Mongelli. Ms. Mongelli is an oncology social worker, and she's our Women's Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Mangeli is going to talk about the free services and programs of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, finding resources, financial, emotional, and social support, the free TNBC Foundation clinical trial matching service, a very important service, and she'll say more about the helpline as well. So it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Mangeli. Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm very happy to be part of the program today. As Dr. Messner mentioned, I am the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator here at Cancer Care, and I work uh, very closely with uh, many women diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer as well as their families. Today, you've been hearing a lot about managing your care, new and upcoming treatments, quality of life, and I'd like to talk a bit about how the triple negative breast cancer helpline and cancer care can be a part of your support System. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care have partnered together to ensure those with triple negative breast cancer have access to free psychosocial services and support. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation Helpline, which is generously funded by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, provides callers with access to comprehensive services, including one-on-one -on -one counseling offered um, individually um, in our New York City area, as well as over the phone nationally. Uh, triple negative breast cancer specific support groups, education, and reading materials and financial support. By calling the hotline, individuals are connected with an oncology social worker trained in triple negative breast cancer and the physical, emotional, and practical issues surrounding the disease. Our licensed master's level oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis affects not just the individual but their entire family and support system. We are aware of the financial demands, physical challenges, 
social adjustment and psychological impact of uh, that triple negative breast cancer ha can have on an individual. Adjusting to and finding ways of coping with this diagnosis can be an important part of your healing process. We want you to know that asking for help, whether you're a patient, caregiver, or a family member, is a sign of strength. You do not have to walk this path alone. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others, going through a similar experience, and encountering similar problems. Individual counseling can provide a space that is just yours to voice concerns concern and navigate the issues I mentioned earlier. These, conne these connections can help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer and their loved ones experience, and feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with, the treat with your treatments. I wanted to mention that we are currently running a dedicated triple negative breast cancer online support group, which is accepting new members. If you are interested in learning more about the support group or any um, other supportive services I've mentioned today, I encourage you to call the triple negative breast cancer helpline at 877-880-8622 uh, um, to speak with an oncology social worker. I'd also like to take this opportunity to um, to mention the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation has clinical trial matching service that can make your search for immunotherapy trials faster and easier. You can speak to a, cl a trained clinical trials navigator at 877-769-4827 or visit www.emergingmed.com slash networks slash TNVCF. Um, We've um, learned a lot from today's program, and there is certainly a great deal of information to digest. Our social workers can help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. Again, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at 877-880-8622 so that you can access the services of the triple, uh, triple negative breast cancer helpline. Lastly, please remember that you are not alone. Um, and thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. And now I'll just turn this back over to um, Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Mangelli. That was really outstanding. Um, thank you. Um, all of these presentations have been wonderful. And now we have time for questions. And I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. I know some of you already know how to do that and are doing it, but I want to be sure everybody has a chance to ask a question. And if we don't get to your question, we'll be sure at the end to give you guidance of how to get your questions answered. But let's see how many we can take right now. So, Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Erica T. Your line is open. Yes, hi. Um, I wanted to ask about, uh, well, let me give you a little uh, bit about my um, history. I am um, metastatic triple negative and have been, um, I guess, in, uh, since the end of 2015. And I participated in a clinical trial with uh, immunotherapy and was, in fact, receiving the immunotherapy along with uh, the chemotherapy. And I had no, yeah, I had um, um, a good response, and then my, um, my cancer mutated, and it was no longer PDL one positive. So it is now stable. So my question is, do I continue... Would you recommend my continuing on some type of chemotherapy, even though it's stable, or should I refrain from anything at this point until it starts to progress again? Okay, thank you for that excellent question. Now, I'm going to ask um, that um, because it's a very individual question, and of course your healthcare team actually knows all the details about you. But I'm going to ask Dr. Delaney if she can address your question in a general way, giving you some general guidance in terms of the questions you might ask your healthcare team about that. Um, and so, Dr. Twain, if you could address this in a general way um, and so that um, Erica could get some help in, in thinking this through or, or what goes through into making those decisions, but that, that decision would be between her and her healthcare team ultimately. So 
So, you know, I think it's the situation does happen and will probably be happening more and more as we start using the combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy, where I think the question arises, you know, if um, patients have what we consider a maximal response or have a really good response at some point, you know, can you drop um, either the chemotherapy or potentially drop the immunotherapy, um, and could a patient then just be observed? And, you know, I will say that this did happen um, on the very original trials where patients just got immunotherapy alone. There were a few patients who had very, you know, nice responses to immunotherapy and they discontinued the immunotherapy. Um, and these patients were followed. And again, these are very tiny numbers of patients, and so it's more anecdotes than true data. But, you know, there were patients who were able to remain off of all therapy uh, for some period of time. You know, there are a couple patients we have even at our own institution that have been off therapy um, without getting any treatment, and their cancer has been controlled. And then, you know, there are some patients whose then cancer sometime later started to regrow, and then we re-expose them again to chemo and immunotherapy. And I think the honest answer is we don't know. We don't know enough information in general about duration of immunotherapy, um, at what time point can we drop either agent. Um, and, and so I think my general practice is when I start chemotherapy with immunotherapy, I usually treat with both agents. If a patient develops a toxicity to one of them, then I will drop that one that's causing the side effects and continue the other. Um, you know, the question is, is how long does that need to be maintained? And, and frankly, we just don't know the answer. Thanks. I hope that helps, Erica, and I hope you'll be able to go back to your treating healthcare team and, and have that further discussion with them. And we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and um, so the question, and I'm going to give this one to Dr. Jankowitz. If someone is receiving Herceptin Progetta for HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer and was just diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, um, and are there any treatment alternatives besides chemotherapy that can be considered, including clinical trials, while taking Herceptin Progetta? Should I repeat that, or is, was it? That, um, that is an interesting question. So it sounds like they're implying that there's actually two different primary cancers um, in this particular case, which would be unusual. Um, we can see tumor heterogeneity where at times a cancer that previously expressed the HER2 antigen then or had HER2 overexpression then later is is that is lost on a subsequent biopsy so i'm not sure which of the two situations is going on there based on that information but that is going to make it a challenge from the standpoint of clinical trial eligibility cuz generally clinical trials do um, offer treatment for either HER2 positive disease or triple negative disease, and one or the other could be an exclusion criteria. Um, but one of the tenets of treating HER2 positive breast cancer is that you do not remove HER2 blockade. So if the patient does indeed have HER2 positive breast cancer that was being actively treated, the development of a subsequent cancer that was triple negative would not generally mean that you would stop the HER2 positive treatment um, unless the provider thought, like I said, that it was just a tumor heterogeneity issue and, and that the cancer was actually no longer actually HER2 positive. Excellent. And Dr. Um, do you want to add anything to that? or? Oh, I, I think that was a you know an excellent overview. I think obviously it's complicated because in this particular question we're not quite sure. Um, is it that the cancer really mutated that the same tumor that was known um, to be HER2 positive is now triple negative, which is unusual to lose HER2, um, but but can happen. Or is it um, you know as Dr. Jankovic was alluding to, is it a heterogeneous tumor, uh, in which case you're trying to treat two different cancers at the same time? And so I think that that's where the treatment decision would be based on which scenario is, you know, the correct one. Um, and sometimes it's hard to know. I will say just generally speaking, you know, most clinical trials um, that are geared towards triple negative cancer are not going to allow continue, well, would not allow, um, you know, concurrent use of anti-HER2 therapy. Um, and so that would be challenging. Excellent. 
Um, and our next telephone call. So I hope that's helpful, and I hope you'll t- again take us back to treating healthcare team and um, and and um, and have that discussion further with them. Okay, excellent. Um, and our next question, um, Crystal, from the telephone. Thank you. Our next question comes from Pamela D. Your line is open. Please check that your line's not on mute. Hello, is that better? Yes. Yes, okay. I'm sorry. My daughter has been diagnosed with triple negative uh, metastatic cancer, and her insurance does not cover genomic testing. And I'm wondering, is it worth her while to pursue that on her own privately in order to find a clinical trial? Excellent and an important so, question. Um, yeah, no, that is and, an important question. And your and your daughter is um, your daughter is not covered by any other insurance besides her own insurance. Is that correct? She's over twenty six. Is that correct? Or? that's correct. Okay. Right. Um, Mary Rose, do you have any thoughts about that in terms of the the question? In terms of um, just the insurance and. I, in regards to insurance, um, I don't have an answer to that. If it's not covered, um, I would encourage her to definitely seek out um, clinical trials or another way to um, find some financial assistance that may pay for the genomic testing. Um, but right now, there's really no information on what the insurance may or may not cover, given um the state of our our healthcare system right now. It's still really kind of up in the air. Um, so she can actually reach out to her insurance company as well. Maybe they can give her some um, helpful tips on who to call and um, what to do. That's basically a lot of all the information that I give, and that's such a great question. I really wish I, I had um, an answer for you. Um, and sometimes, the, that's a, actually, that's a very good point you're making because sometimes the insurance companies do have a case manager who might be aware of either um, a, a usually copay foundation or someone who might be able to help with the cost, or even going directly to the um, the the, um, the genomic testing site and seeing if they would be willing to um, to um, do that, you know, to work with that um, company to see if they could um, help. So you, almost need an advocate. I would suggest she go ahead and call Cancer Care as well, just because we're the triple negative breast cancer line, just because our staff might be able to, in talking with her personally, might be able to come up with you, may be able to come up with some solutions. And I guess I should ask our healthcare, Dr. Twain and Dr. Jankowitz, in your settings, what happens when that happens? Is there, does it get directed to social work or financial assistance? Does somebody actually help so people can get that testing, which we've described as being so important? I think I would first just clarify what type of testing is it because um, if it's genetic testing versus actually genomic testing of the tumor, I will say that there are lots of places, for example, our institution, Dana-Farber, we do do genomic testing of the tumor for free, um, and so that is just done um you know, in-house on our own panel, um, and so that does make it accessible to all patients. Um, and so that that's one way out of it is, is that a lot of um, centers actually do provide this at large academic institutions. Um, in terms of genetic testing, though, to get BRCA status, you know, it is in the NCCN um, guidelines for any patient under the age of 60 who has uh, metastatic triple negative breast cancer to have, um, you know, genetic testing done. And so that is something I think um, that one could, you know, push back with insurance coverage on. Mm-hmm. So that, um, so actually, I think we will reach out to you after the call. Um, and see if we can come up with some to kind of help you um, either, uh, you know, just because we 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 realize that there are particulars about the situation that we want to ask and we don't want to, so, but we, anyone, but, but your question is very good because a lot of people on the call are struggling with that issue. And I guess hearing Dr. Twainy say that the medical centers, the academic centers really do have resources. So there may be resources in your community or in your medical center that maybe um, we could help you to tap into that might be of, of help to you. Um, and um, so I, I wouldn't want anyone to throw up their hands and think they can't get that testing because we're also saying how important it is as well. So um, also I guess we, um, so 
Um, so for anyone on the call who's struggling with that same issue, go ahead and just give us a call because we would want to try to help you with that. Um, and we will call the person who asked ask this question, Pamela, because we actually um, will try to f help you more specifically. Um, and we do have another question um, from one of our um, participants. Um, and this question is for Dr. Tulaney. Um, at what point should a triple negative uh, patient get genomic testing? And there's another part to it. Um, if done at original diagnosis, wouldn't this information eliminate the use of chemo in patients who, do, who would not have a pathological complete response to the chemo and be at much higher risk for metastatic disease? Also, it could eliminate the toxicities of chemo in a patient who will not benefit from it. It's a long question. So do you want me to repeat that, or is that... So I guess the first part is in a patient who has metastatic triple negative disease, when should they have genomic testing done? Yes. You know, I guess the honest truth is right now there is no treatment um, that would be decided by in terms of standard therapies by genomic testing um, outside of knowing if you had a, a genetically inherited BRCA mutation, and which you could get from just genetic testing. Um, and so, you know, I will say it is very controversial um, about whether or not genomic testing is truly needed. You know, I think, you know, certainly I come at it from a perspective of, you know, being at an academic center where we're very interested in trying new drugs based on genomic alterations in the pathway um, that we find. But, you know, I will say it is not a standard approach, and it would really be just to see if there are clinical trials um, that are of interest based on these genomic tests. It is true that along the course of one's disease, one's tumor can change, and what's found on genomic testing potentially at the beginning of one's treatment course and then, you know, potentially later on in the treatment course, if one were to look at the tumor again, the genomic alterations could be different. Um, and so, you know, I will say, uh, again, at academic institutions, sometimes we redo genomic testing um, along the time course because we do see that the alterations do change over time, and sometimes it makes different trials, you know, available. However, I will say it is not standard, and many insurances don't pay for genomic tests, again, because there's no data yet to support that it would guide treatment for metastatic triple negative disease. Um, and so I don't think it's necessary. It's just if if there was interest in clinical trial participation, it, it can help that. In terms of the other question, which was, you know, I think not really, I think it was m more looking, I, unless I misunderstood, looking at trying to prevent de developing metastatic disease, meaning to look at tumors earlier on um, in one's disease and, and to look at residual tumor from someone who got preoperative therapy and look at genomics to guide potential treatments after surgery to help prevent recurrence. And I will say that that is a huge area of interest and because we completely agree that if one could better understand how to treat tumors that maybe were resistant to chemotherapy with other drugs, could we potentially do better? And so there are lots of trials that are planned to look at genomic tests based on um, what's found at the time of surgery to try and guide uh, treatment after surgery. Um, but again, I, I will say these are you know early on, and, and we don't have data for many of these types of interventions at this time. Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Jankowitz, do you wish to add? Or, um... Yeah, I think that that was a really excellent overview. It is incredibly important to emphasize the difference between genetic testing, which looks for cancer predisposition, and genomics of the tumor that could guide therapy. I think that genetic testing, any provider should be able to readily argue with insurance companies about getting that covered um, in terms of looking for a BRCA mutation, and that really could change management of the patient. The cost of genetic testing has plummeted over time. Uh, it can be obtained for several hundred dollars now. Um, in terms of tumor genomics, as, as Dr. Tulaney pointed out, at the current time, they really aren't often changing the care of the patient, unfortunately. Uh, we, we do have a ways to go with that, and it is incredibly important that we continue that work in the setting of clinical trials. 
Um, and I do agree with you that all patients should potentially have access to that at some point, ideally. In terms of residual disease, that is a, a ripe area for further research in terms of looking at the residual tumor after chemotherapy, looking for mechanisms of, of resistance in terms of the androgen receptor positive triple negative breast cancer, for instance, it, it does seem or there's some indication that preoperative chemotherapy <clears throat> can induce AR or there's a possibility that either that or the androgen receptor positive cells don't respond as well. So is that an opportunity then to take patients who have residual disease that is androgen receptor positive, for instance, and then implement AR blockade at that point? Those are all active areas of on ongoing investigation. Um, there's some indication that AR um, is anti-proliferative and it can stimulate ER-beta, so that's an active area of uh, investigation um, in terms of estrogen receptor beta in, in these particular tumors. So we, we still have a lot to learn, I guess that's the take-home message, and um, we, we will continue to do that in the setting of clinical trials. Thank you. I actually do want to just mention that there are a number of pro bono law firms throughout the country, um, and we will include that when you get your evaluation, you will be getting um, all the resources we discussed during the program. We will also add all of those pro bono law firms, and many of them, they cover the entire United States, actually. And um, and some of them actually, uh, this triage cancer um there are a number of them that actually may be able to help as advocates around these issues that come up around your insurance covering things, really helping you to frame questions uh, around that as well. Um, and also, of course, whether there are other resources that we have not been able to mention today on the call that may actually be of help to you. So I, I, I'm just looking into the future. For some of you, these may be important tests to have at the moment. You know, it's just it's important to know that there may be more resources out there for you than readily come to mind. And we have one. This will be our last question. Um, it is. Um, I'm going to give this one. I guess I'll start with Dr. Um, uh, Tulani on this one. Um, what is the value of running KI67 blood test in projecting response to chemo? Isn't a high KI67 suggestive of expected response to chemo? So generally speaking, KI67 is looking at proliferation of a cancer. And so the higher the number, the more proliferative and sort of the faster growing um, it is. And so, you know, generally speaking, tumors that have high KI67 may be more sensitive to chemotherapy. I will say, generally speaking, too, though, most triple negative cancers tend to have higher KI-67, and it hasn't been shown, in, at least in triple negative disease, that use of KI-67 as a predictor of benefit to chemotherapy is useful. I will say that is different in hormone receptor positive cancers, where um, there is data to suggest that KI-67 um, is sort of predictive and prognostic, um, but that's not the case in triple negative disease, and so I I generally don't use that when factoring in treatment decisions um, for this particular type of cancer. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been just phenomenal, just excellent. Um, I also want to thank our participants. We've really asked such really thoughtful and challenging questions and questions that are challenging to you in terms of, of um, you know, getting the best access to care. And I hope that you have learned information today that you can take back to your treating healthcare team. Now, I know there are many of you who still have questions, so that um, in terms of how to get your questions answered. So I usually do recommend that people contact, of course, the National Cancer Institute. They have a toll-free number. We'll send that in the evaluations. And they also have a live chat feature at www.cancer.gov. And their information specialists will be able to, you can post your question um, and they will then address your question. It's usually during business hours, Eastern time, so 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. They're usually there, and you can post your question, and they will try to get you information that you need. But you've also heard about many other resources um, that are available to you as well um, from the matching, uh, the clinical, the tr triple negative breast cancer foundation clinical trial matching service, um, and you've also heard of the 
Komen Clinical Trial Service, and you've also heard about um, the um, the uh, www.clinicaltrials.gov, which is the government clinical trials information as well. So all of those you'll be getting in your evaluation materials. Uh, most importantly, um, as we are about to conclude the program, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with triple ne- metastatic triple negative breast cancer. I want you to know there's a lot of more resources out there than you probably thought there were, um, and we will send all of those resources to you when you get your evaluation. Also, um, it's important to know that that we are all here to help you. Um, also, for many of you, living with metastatic triple negative breast cancer can be a, a challenging, and indeed, we do have um, we do uh, we now offer a meditation app, um, which many people find helpful. Um, it's um, it's a nice way to kind of get um, it's a, it's on our website, and we will send information about that to you as well. And um, it, it can give you some opportunities to really have an exercise around meditation and relaxation exercises that could actually help you as well. Um, also, we don't want to um, take you away from your healthcare team. Whatever you've learned today, please take it back to your healthcare team. Any questions that you've asked today, please take them back to your treating healthcare team. I hope you'll take them back with a sense of greater confidence and more information and in asking your questions. But do really um, talk to your healthcare team about any questions or concerns you may have. And also around the insurance issue, that is such an important issue that everyone on this call and all of us remember to really when someone says it's not covered, to actually begin to think about is there a way um, to really bump that up a bit and see if, if someone can help you with that, maybe your healthcare team, whether your institution, the medical center can help with that. Um, remember, everyone wants you to get the very best care possible. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.